church this morning before we stand to hear God's word read, so get prepared. Um, we, uh, I just, the words from our last song just are just really resonating with me well this morning, strongly. First verse, speak, O Lord, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth planted deep in us, shape and fashion us in your likeness, that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and our deeds of faith. Speak, O Lord, and fulfill in us all your purposes for your glory. We intend here, Grace Church, to aspire after that. It's kind of written into the fabric of our church's life and DNA, and we don't make much about it, much of anything else. You'll find that out if you're here. If you hang around Grace very long, you know that that's what we are about and will always be about, hopefully, with God's help. That's why we, pre- we preach expository preachings, like what Josh is praying on the theme of elders this morning. It's tough to, as an elder to talk about eldership because I stand in that office and it's like, then I have to go teach what that office is and teach about really the pains of that office today in this text. And so I, I praise God that that's not my design, that's his design, and that's what we simply are aspiring to be here at Grace Church. And so with that said, let's stand now and let's hear the reading of God's word this morning that we will be studying. We'll be in 1 Peter 5. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. So I exhort the elders among you, as I a fellow elder and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. But when the chief shepherd appears to you, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. You may have a seat. Why would anyone ever want to be a leader in our culture today? Have you asked that question of yourself? Like, maybe that's the reason why you're not. Maybe like, you're like, are you high when the pastor comes down the hallway because you know he's going to ask you to teach class? Or, you know, or who would want to be a leader today? I mean, if you're, I mean, just look around at what's going on in our lives, in our world today, and it just would not, it's, it's a fair question, right? I mean, let's just take it out of the context of the church and just put it into larger context. Like, seriously, someone wants to be the president of the United States in this culture? Right? Putting aside your politics and our different issues that relate to that, I mean, just looking at the nature of the office itself, it seems that if you aspire after leadership in any context, it would seem that it's impossible to win. I think that's a fair, I think all of us can at least say that impartially, right? It's, it's almost impossible for someone to win in any type of leadership role. I mean, just consider, like, if you've ever seen the before and the after pictures of presidents who take office. Yeah, you, you know the difference, right? You see the age that is put on them because the pressures and the weights that they carry and their responsibilities. Um, I, I, my, my, one of my closest friends, Joe Stegall at Providence Baptist Church, when he started, we started Providence, he seriously looked like a 16-year-old. Today, he looks like a 16-year-old with gray hair. And so, you know, uh, if you know Joe, you know what I'm talking about. But it didn't take long before that started to really show up in him after four or five years. Like, there's just stress and weight to leadership. Because in some ways, it's very hard to be a leader in our culture. I like Dan Doriani's comments on this in a recent blog he wrote. He says, Res- um, resentment, 
fuels senseless hate for athletes, speakers, politicians, business leaders, entertainers, artists, and even elders and shepherds of local churches. I think he's right. Leaders of all stripes put themselves in, line, in the line of fire on a daily basis. At times they are admired and other times they are attacked. At other time, uh, one time they might be adored and give it a second and then they're going to be scorned. And history will seems to give evidence to us of what a good leader is versus a, a poor leader. A poor leader is those who seek the office for their own gain, for their own personal ambitions, for their own power, for their own prestige, for their own influence. But a true leader understands something about the nature of leadership, and I'm going to put this in context of eldership this morning, that very few people seek out when they go to seek leadership. They understand the role of suffering. They understand that if you're going to set into a step, you even have the audacity to step into any type of leadership role, you know that there's going to come suffering because there's going to be pushback, there's going to be troubles, there's going to be difficulties, there's going to be hard decisions that you have to face in your office. And I believe history will prove, I think hopefully I'm long dead by that point, but history will prove that the greatest leaders in history will be the ones that you have never heard about, that I've never heard about. Not the ones who write all the books, not the ones who sit at conferences, not the ones who have big pulpits. Again, not that those things are necessarily wrong, but I think the greatest leaders are the ones that are forgotten or perhaps never known. And if you look at Peter's words today, he switches gears and he's been in this context of suffering and he's going to the elders. He says, you now get to pastor these people in suffering and no one's ever going to take notice of your leadership. No one's ever going to take notice of that. You, you are going to be right there and it's going to be your job. It's going to be your job to pastor these people through the unknowns and through the difficulties and through anonymity in a lot of ways. And people, no one's ever going to know you. You're never, there's never, you don't, we don't know of no elder from Asia Minor. I don't know, the, I, and I might be wrong, and I'm not great, I'm not great at early church history, but I don't know that uh, there's this particular church father that comes from that particular area. Most of them come from North Africa, right, Alexandria, and then other parts of the Greco-Roman world, but these leaders... I mean, obviously, we know about Turkey, and we know about all the things that are right there, but, and ultimately Constantinople, but that was much later. Peter wants us this morning to remember a couple things about being elders and about what elders this church should want, and frankly, what the elders in this room who serve this church should remember is this. Godly elders embrace the suffering of our office, and I say our because I embrace that, as we shepherd God's suffering people until Jesus returns and his glory is revealed. A true elder, that's what they understand about their nature, their office, is that they embrace the suffering of this, of that, not only their own office, but the suffering of their own people. As they shepherd God's people in the midst of suffering, again, you, can't just, you cannot take this out of the context of suffering until Jesus returns and his glory is revealed. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to look at five points from this text, these five verses, five points, okay? I want to try to run through them as quickly as possible. We're going to look at the elder's office. We're going to look at the elder's task. We're going to look at the elder's posture, his reward, and then lastly, his authority. And it'll just kind of flow right through the text for us. So it should be pretty easy to pick up on. Now, I want to say something before I jump in. I kind of alluded to it a minute ago. I just want to have a bit of point of honesty here. I've taught on elders before. I will continue to teach on elders. That's what text requires, and as we need to instruct the church, 
And there's, there's a difference between instructing on elders from 1 Timothy chapter 3, when it talks about the qualities of an elder. It's a much different thing to talk about Tim, uh, Peter's text here, because Peter is instructing elders, and he's dealing with the things that elders he knows will struggle with. And so he's speaking of that, and so I have to speak honestly, not only of just what eldership is and the, the experience of an elder, I think at least from my vantage point, but I also have to speak from the fact of like, like my own experience, and so that's what I hope to do today. And that brings about a little bit of consternation for me, if I'm being honest with you, because that, that level of honesty, I, I fear can be led to you believe that somehow or another that there's a, there's a, a disenchantment with eldership among most elders, and there's not. We just are trying to be really honest about what eldership is, and I think we can do that straight out of Peter's text this morning. And frankly, what I hope will happen out of this is that there will be many men who will be called to eldership from texts like this, and there will be many men who will be not called to eldership because of this, because this text is really raw and really real. Okay? So let's look at that this morning. Let's look at the first point there, the elder's office. So, Peter says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder, as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. He says, so I exhort. You might say, therefore I exhort. You know the rules of engagement when it comes to hermeneutics in Scripture or uh, interpretation of Scripture. When you see a therefore, you got to ask what it's there for, right? And therefore reflects something that has come before, and he's dealing with this context of suffering. So Peter has been dealing for the past few couple of chapters. We've been dealing with the past three or four weeks this difficult topic of suffering. The church will experience suffering, and it will, be cha- it will uh, challenge their zeal for the Lord. But nonetheless, Peter instructs the church to remember that there is a purpose to our suffering whereby God sanctifies us through our suffering and stands as a testimony to the nations about our love for Jesus. That's the summary of the last chapter and a half, two chapters of this text. And then Peter comes to this point here in chapter 5, and he says, Therefore, so I exhort you, this indicates that his instructions now to the elders are connected to the reality of suffering that the church will experience. So by implication, I think it's very fair to say that an elder cannot take on his office of elder if he does not take seriously the nature of the suffering that the church will experience. To not do that, to think that everything's going to be nice and high and mighty and just, and, just, and just filled with this wonderful days ahead and we're just going to have lots of money and lots of buildings and lots of people, it's just not fair to church history. Church history has never supported that idea. American evangelicalism might, might support that idea, but that is not historical Christianity. It just doesn't comport. The pastor and the elder, we travel a well-worn path with other pastors and elders of former times, and through life's struggles and difficulties of our own, and the pains and trials of the people in which we're called to shepherd. There's a dual nature of it, right? There's a, his own issues, his own pains, his own struggles, but he also has to do this in light of the fact that he's doing this with the very people God has called him to suffer with. Sadly, many gaff at that thing, that idea, right? That a pastor actually is a pastor, it's like we've kind of rewritten what a pastor is in Scripture. They gaff at the idea that a pastor actually has as one of his primary calls to actually suffer with the people God has called him to suffer with. That means he's crying with them, he's counseling with them, he's walking through difficult times with them, him and the other elders who serve the church. they actually there, and they have a genuine interest in the lives of the people God has put in their care. And so they gaff at the amount of time when we, I get with pastor gatherings from time to time, and I'll have guys who will say, wow, how do you spend... 
that much time with them. And, and by the way, this is not a, a, a trying to make it about me or whatever else. I just think it's just a call. And I just remind them, I think, that you just can't read the scriptures and not see that this is one of the primary calls of a pastor. You're in the trenches. We'll talk more about that here in a few minutes. Sadly, American evangelicalism has turned the pastor into a sort of, um, oh, I don't know, multimedia mogul class, right? Big platforms, uh, celebrity. And I just, man, I just don't believe that's anywhere close to the truth. Like I said already, I think history's going to show that the greatest pastors are the ones we and I will never, ever hear about. Never, ever hear about. Peter's reminding the elders among these churches that their task is intimately connected to the context of suffering that the sheep that are under their care experience, and they'll do it while they even face their own suffering in their own lives. And he says to them then, so I exhort you, elders among you, Peter's calling the church, as he's, they're reading this letter, the elders among you, he's reminding them God has given them elders. They're not perfect men, but he's given you elders. He's given every church in this city elders in some capacity, whatever they may not use that word, but they've been given to them. These are given, these men are given them to, by God, for at least five tasks. To feed them, to lead them, to care for them, to protect them, and to be example for them. To lead them, to feed them, to care for them, to protect them, and to be an example for them. The body of Christ is not, like many people treat it, as some nebulous spiritual amalgamation of people who exist in perpetuity. I know that sounds really weird to say it that way, but in other words, we are just not free to just kind of float in and out of any old church we want to and think that we're going to get the same experience out of it. No, we're called to local churches, to be with local people, to be shepherded and loved by the people God gives us as well as the elders that God gives us. The local churches. Vitally important to the Christian life. To talk about elders cannot be disconnected from talking about the church. Amen? Because the church is where the elders do their work. They don't do their work just out here. I'm, I'm not everyone's pastor in Smyrna. And now people can come for me for pastoral advice all they want to. But I'm responsible for the people in this room and perhaps some of the people who are not here this morning. I'm, I'm responsible for them. The ones who've covenanted and said, this is my church, these are my people. These people, God says, these men I have given you, the elders among you, church, take notice of them. In other words, take notice of the people God's given you in the local church that you're in, and don't neglect that. Um, but then Peter then relates to them through three different descriptors here. He relates to them as a fellow as a witness and as a partaker. Peter says he understands the unique, number one, fellowship of pastors with one another. Um, any guy who's been a pastor in this room or has served in staff, I know a couple guys have, they know that there's just something unique about a good group and brotherhood of pastors. I have been blessed by my own groups that I run with here in the area. Peter knows this fellowship of, among pastors is a special bond. Their work is unique, and their pressures are not like the pressures of other jobs. Now, let me say that. Please don't get offended by that. 
That's not me one-upping anything. It's not me saying that someone else or no other jobs don't have pressures. It's just not. You just got to say, just being honest about the fact that there are spiritual pressures. There are latent inside a pastor's job. They're just different, and they're hard to relate to other people. And so, therefore, pastors really do have this fraternity that we know and understand one another in a way that maybe others don't. And so they have this, they understand that their year work is unique. The spirit, their spiritual weight is unlike that of other places and works and activities. Peter understands there is such a unique fraternity that exists among elders called to work out the gospel. Look, the normative pattern in the local church, brothers and sisters, is that they had this plurality of elders. You know why? Because one just doesn't do. Oh my gosh, we would never have made it this far at Grace Church if it was just one. I'm so thankful that God has given me the men that he's given me. From day one, God of the three men who were on our original interim leadership team, of the three men they were on, it, two of them are elders, were the first two elders of this church along, came alongside me, Delon and Josh. And those brothers have been in the mix with me since the very beginning. So thankful for that. They came to Providence, and literally a few months after they got to Providence, they were like, hey, you want to plant a church? <laughs> yeah, let's do this. And those guys have been, they've been, they've been shoveling for a long time with me. Seven years. You know, do you know that we will start our eighth year in January? <laughs> That's mind-boggling to me. But those men have been doing it from the very, very beginning. And then we added Justin here two or three years ago. I think, is it three years now or close to three? Maybe two and a half, whatever it's been. It's been a while. Um, Justin has been a great addition to our team. We're working with Gabe. Gabe's finishing up his stuff, and we hope to install him here maybe by the end of the year. And with God's help, we've got two or three other guys that we want to, we're starting to talk to and hopefully to present to you guys here um, by the end of the year as well. The reason why we need this kind of plurality is because there's just work to be done. And when more guys share the load, the work becomes less burdensome on just one individual. And, and so I'm so thankful that the, the fact that we've seen and God do so many wonderful things in the ministry of this church it is only because, in my mind, that God has supplied our church with really, really godly men who have come alongside and, and helped in the work of this church. But the, but the New Testament also envisions a fraternity that goes beyond the local church. I mean, some people call these denominations. That's fine. We don't have to, or associations. But whatever you call them, they're just this, they understand that there's a need for elders from other churches to gather and be together and care for one another and share stories together and, and walk with one another and care for one another. There's just this reality. And Peter understands that. He understands that need. I have two groups particularly that I run with. One that's here that we started, me and a couple guys started here that's grown from two or three guys to now about 15 who come, 14. If everyone shows up, about 15 guys show up. That is just wonderful. It's beautiful. The way those guys love for one another. One of the brothers just got diagnosed with leukemia, has been in the hospital, and will be in the hospital to the end of, to the first of, the, uh, of uh, September or so. And me and a couple pastors went down and spent time with him at the hospital in Nashville. We're brothers. We text. We laugh. We play. We do things together because we know we have to. A brother of mine that I see every week, it's actually a former pastor of some of our friends here in the church. And Man, me and Tyler, there's a rare week that me and Tyler don't spend quality time together. If, not, if nothing else, we're, we're, we're calling each other and checking in because it's just that friendship is needed, regardless of how defined the denominational structure may be. There's a fraternity there. And so I say all this to say, Peter's coming to the elders here, and he's not pulling rank as an apostle. He's coming as a fellow. He's coming with a pastoral heart. He's understanding this unique 
weight that these guys bear. And he's coming to them as one who bears the same weight. And he says, hey, brothers, we've got a work to do. Let's, let's, let's walk and lean on one another together in this work, shall we? He wants to identify with them. That is some kind of papist or primate from Rome, but as a one in the trenches with them. Beautiful. Wonderful. It's one of the reasons why I'm Baptist, by the way. Because we just get together, we do it together, and we walk together. Peter also was a witness, he says. Now, he's a witness to the sufferings of Christ in a way that the other elders aren't, right? Because he, he, he was in the life of Jesus in his ministry. He, he saw the, the ministry that Jesus had, um, had done. He saw, he, he may not have been personally present at the crucifixion. There's no evidence that that was the case because of his, reject, his um, the rejection of Jesus or denying of Jesus there. But he was there during the persecution. And he was there that when he was arrested, and he was there at least partially when that seditious trial was going on for Jesus. He, he did see these things. And he says, I'm a witness to both of those. And what he's saying here as a witness to the sufferings of Christ, he's telling them, hey, brother, I'm, I'm going to be a ground for you as you go and do your work. Why? Because I'm going to remind you that everything that you're preaching and teaching is real. That suffering of Jesus that you are preaching on Sundays that you didn't get to visit, see, I saw it, and it's real. And that suffering that was accomplished, that, thing, that, that suffering of Jesus that you are so identified with is, is so important because it's on the accomplishments of that suffering, that is, Jesus' atoning work, his sacrifice for us on the cross, his resurrection, and his, all are part of the central message that the elder is called to preach. Only called to preach. You may think it's one old hat when, a, when you come up with a pastor for for, for some counseling session or whatever else, and we just give you Jesus. Now, of course, we're going to get in there and do the dirty work and stuff, but the reality is ultimately we have to run us back to the cross. And so Peter says, I'm a witness to these sufferings, and so let my witness to these sufferings be a, a wind in yourselves. And that's what we do together. Older pastors in my life who've walked this rough, and they're like, wind in myself. Hopefully I get to do that with some other guys who are younger than me. Wind in their selves. Peter says, I want to be a witness yourselves because the message in which you preach, I saw it. I was witness to it. It's real. He says, I'm a partaker with you then. So on that basis, I'm a partaker with you of the glory to be revealed. To be a partaker, he says, his fellowship is in, in, the proper, is in the proper witness to the good news of the gospel paves the way for a the unifying between Peter and the elders in the church in a way that can't be described very easily. He says, because of this, I'm partaking in the same suffering that you will. And I'm going, oh man, and I'm going to partake in the day when Jesus returns. It's going to be sweet, friends. It's going to be sweet, brothers, he's saying. So he says, look, this is the office. And I'm here with you as a fellow. I'm here with you as a witness. I'm here as you, with you as a partaker. But he's not just talking about the office. Number two, he's talking about the elder's task. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, he says, exercising oversight. Shepherd the flock. The elder has a stewardship. Shepherd. He said those five words earlier. Let's walk through them real quick and describe what they mean. Protect. What does a shepherd do? He protects from wolves. What's a shepherd in the church do? He protects from, from bad people and bad ideas and false doctrines that like to seep into the church. So if you see a pastor get pretty, you know, stiff-armed about certain ideas, you best believe he's trying to protect you. 
It's called the lead. It means we set the point. But you know what's funny about the shepherd? How's a shepherd lead? It's a flock. Is he out front? No. Usually out back, right? If you ever watched a herd being moved, they're not moving with people up front. They're moving from like multiple guys on horses are kind of surrounding the herd and they're kind of pushing the herd down the road. That's what an elder does. It's not just someone who's going to platform somewhere. It's someone from behind, usually unseen or largely unseen, and they're there to push the herd from behind, push them forward, push them towards heaven, push them towards the new heavens and new earth. They're there to feed them. They give the flock the appropriate nutrients they need to keep moving forward. The church needs elders who teach sound doctrine, who ground the church in biblical precepts that are timeless. They don't need savvy social media moguls. Like I was in a meeting one time, unfortunately at a pastor's gathering, and the pastor says, how to pastor your church through social media? And I literally wanted to gag. Like, I don't care about that. You don't, I don't pastor people through social media. You pastor people in their lives. Now, of course, there's, certainly we can aid things and use different things, but brothers and sisters, if you're being pastored by someone online rather than a person in which that sits in front of you on Sunday morning, you have lost a sense of what it means to be pastored. Your pastor should be involved in your life. Now, he may not be there every minute of your life. He may not be your best friend, but he knows what's going on in your life, or at least the pastors or one of the pastors in your church knows what's going on in your life. That's what it means to pastor. He feeds them sound doctrine and precepts. He cares for them. He mends their wounds. We got wounded sheep in the churches around this area. We got wounded sheep in this church. And it's our job to help to the best of our ability to mend some of those wounds with the gospel. Some of those people experience attacks that you and I can't even begin to imagine from wolves, and it leaves deep marks, and it takes time, and that's why we come alongside members here, both as our elders, but also to help them get outside counseling from time to time so that we can help them heal some of those wounds. That's what we're trying to do. Look, you don't need elders who are dynamic businessmen, savvy businessmen, charismatic leaders, cultural creatives, entrepreneurs. Now, look, can some of those things benefit? Of course they can. We got needs in our church to help us grow and keep us structured. Yes, of course. I was talking to a brother this week about that. But the reality is a pastor should protect, lead, feed, care, and be an example to the flock. And that's what we should want. He is a pastor of a steward of God's flock. He says, shepherd the flock of God. It's not his church. You're not my church. You're not Josh, Delon, Justin's church. You're not Gabe's church. You're God's church. And I come along to do what God calls me to do in this church. Not what I creatively invent for me to do. We commonly use that word, like, my church, right? And we get what we mean by that, right? That's, where I, that's my home. That's my people. But when we get so far into this idea of my church, so this kind of possession of my church, what, we, what do we do? We end up making the church about our own image. Church members can do that about their church. It's so can pastors. We've got to be careful of that kind of idea. It's problematic because we tend to make the church about us and our preferences and our comforts, like I said. Pastors, I don't, um, I don't, you know, I don't like the way you, the paint you put on the walls. You know, pastor, I, I don't like that song. I don't, I don't like that how we've grown. I like the sweet little church we were four years ago. You know, I mean, there's lots of different things that people can say. And, and, and the reality is, elder, the elders pour out their time 
not for their own ambitions. They're not free to make the church what they want. No, the church doesn't exist for him. He exists for the church, or they exist for the church. The elder pours out their time and talent and love, some full-time like myself and others none, not. So there's different degrees of responsibility, of course, from time-wise, but, but they're still pouring out their love for the church. And the church, of course, we believe should honor that and respect those, and as we'll see here in a little while, trust them. I was counseling a friend of mine who's in another church, and the church just is not able, well, they're able, but they're not wanting to provide for his family. They want him full-time, but it's just becoming a struggle for him to remain in his current position because it's having effects on his family. And, and so that's not being selfish. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. But the reality is, is you know, that the church can and should, and I'm so grateful that this church has enabled that to happen, for me at least. Again, what I want to say is we're not a church who's free. I'm not free to make this church anything I want it to be, and I hope I never have. There's a church in Chattanooga, I won't name the church, that just went through a really, really bad process, and the pastor was known to be having affairs on videos, and he denied it, but he's still the pastor of this church. He's gone through a divorce, still the pastor of this church. And people are running, staff are running out of the church, but he's still pastor of this church, and they literally have people defending him, saying, well, he's God's steward of this church. How dare we... How dare, how dare we ever question him? Why? Because he sinned. And he's not qualified for his office. That's why. Friends, we don't want churches like that. We should not want people going to churches like that. Not because we're, I'm not prone to sin. Lord knows I am. Lord knows my frailties and knows my struggles and knows my own sins. And many in this church know them too. But the proper way is to lead us towards repentance. Why? Because we are called to shepherd God's flock, exercising oversight. The elders are given an oversight. Pastor and the elder's job is not to sit in an office all week studying Greek syntax and reading really good books. By the way, I'd love that if you wanted to get that in my job title. I love that kind of stuff, but I don't have time for that all the time. I do it as much as I can, but I don't have time for that. No, exercise implies effort. It requires diligent, deliberate effort, action, work. Again, when we first brought Josh and Delon on as elders, like I said, almost eight years ago or seven years ago, um, I pulled a bunch of churches that I felt like had good models of churches I want our church to be like, and I called some of these churches up. I said, can I talk to some of your lay elders? And I said, hey, if you had one, if you could tell, you could say one thing to the elders, new elders coming into a church office, what would you tell them? And unanimously, I mean unanimously, the very first answer was something to this. You need to be prepared for the work to be way harder and way more time consuming than you could ever imagine. It's just what it is. It's just what it is. This is why it's important for elders, vocational or non-vocational, to get regular seasons of rest. Now, this heads up, you're going to hear maybe some of this tonight at our members meeting. Like, we're, we're trying to get Don and Josh a little bit of rotation off here in the next few months. And we got, and, and we're going to work to get some of these other guys raised up so that we can have guys who can still shoulder the work while they're taking a rest. They much need to rest. I'm thankful for that. That's what we want. We want to build into the DNA of our church. I just had a sabbatical for six weeks this summer, removed from preaching for a few weeks. And that's the goal every five or so years to give that time so that I try to stack some of my vacation together in, in multiple weeks at a time throughout the year so that I can be away at a more expanded time because week sometimes just is not enough to kind of dial down. There's just a lot of work. 
Now, again, I want you to hear me say this. Just because there's a lot of work doesn't mean it's a burdening work. It doesn't mean it's an enjoyable work. It just means it's a lot of work. That's all it is. And so we want to make sure that our oversight, we have men who give oversight, and they're involved, and they're, in, and they're involved in people's lives, that they're, doing, they're able to do the work that they're called to do. Let me tell you, a clear sign of a man who's not called to be an elder. Only one. He doesn't want to get his hands dirty. He doesn't want to get into the lives of people. He doesn't want to get into murky places with people. He, he, he wants his job and his office and responsibilities to be tied to a schedule, maybe perhaps. I got this responsibility, I got that. That's just not it. There's no possible way that works out, whether you're vocational or non-vocational as a pastor. It just doesn't work that way. Man, no, an elder who doesn't want to do the work has no business ever wanting to shepherd the sheep. Ever. Number three, the elder's posture. How are we to shepherd and, how, and give oversight? Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not under shameful gain. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. And not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So we have to have a, the proper posture, right? This is, this is, now, this is what Peter gets, gets really real about elders. And so what I'm about to share with you, I think, it's, I think Peter hit it right on the mark. I think this is lived out in every, com, most conversations I have with other elders and honestly my own experience. I think Peter is giving these words because he's piercing into what is going to be the most common realities that elders are going to struggle with in their task. They're going to struggle to be begrudging. He says, so that struggle, brother, you need to do your work willingly. And what is, he, what is Peter trying to say? Not under compulsion um, or not begrudgingly, but willingly. Man, that's a toughie. 25 years of ministry, I can say that there's a reason Peter gives his instructions. Um, because I think if Peter were, you know, again, me trying to read in a little bit here, Peter's probably saying, you know, the reason um, he probably has the same tendency that I have. Man, if I don't do it, someone else is, you know, someone else doesn't do it, I'm, I'm going to have to do this. If I don't do this, someone else, no one else will. That's what I mean to say. The work won't get done if I don't do it. There's just that propensity. And I'm not saying that about myself. I'm saying that about really most elders that I feel, feel that way. It's just, and they just jump in and do it. It's my opinion that this is a real companion, I think, for most elders and most pastors who serve in, this past, in these, in these um, positions. So I believe this instruction by Peter is timeless. This doesn't mean that a pastor is just called to be willing. It doesn't mean he's just called to be happy-go-lucky. Right? You don't, look, if I just constantly, if you come and ask me how things are going, and I just kind of give you the nice smile, everything's great. Don't believe me. Okay, and I don't mean that because I'm miserable, but just just not true. Like, and by the way, I know that pastor who's happy-go-lucky. He comes to my breakfast on Sunday mornings. I mean, on Tuesday mornings, twice a month, once a month. That guy, every time we ask that question to this gentleman, I love this brother to death. But he just goes, "I'm just so better than God could ever ever make me." And I'm like, I believe that. But at the same time, every other guy around the red table starts rolling their eyes in the back of their head because sometimes you just want right. You just want a guy who just. Like, be honest. Like, it's okay that you have tough times. And here's what the reality is. I know that guy went through tough times, but he won't share it with those guys at the table. Brothers and sisters, don't be the person who sits in a, in a, in a small group or prayer meeting or a coffee meeting or just someone in your house and, and someone asks you how you're going and just give them the glossy smile. Everything's great. God is good. That's true. But God is good regardless if everything's great or not. And so be willing to just say to them, it's not great right now. My friend Eric, who's in St. Thomas in uh, Midtown with, um, with leukemia right now, it's not great for him. 
And he didn't know, like, he, at first he didn't know if he really wanted to, but then he calls me up on a Friday and says, Brother, I need you to talk to the brothers for me. You don't have to be great to be willing to do the work. In fact, to be honest with you, it's not always going to be great. Like, there were early days of our church to willingly, what it means here to be willing is to carry out our ministry is to submit our will to God's will. That's all this means. Regardless if it's good or not. Like when we started Grace Church, I, I, I didn't know how God was going to provide for my family. I mean, I, we had an idea, we had a plan, but sometimes plans don't work out the way you want to. And there were times when I had to work two different jobs over on top of this to, to make ends meet, and it just was. You know, is, that, is that me saying sad on me? No, it's, no, it's not that at all. Like, we do what you have to do to take care of business. That was a temporary season, thank God. Thank for his mercy for that. But the reality is, even if that was the case, like, friends, we are called to repent of begrudging perspectives on our lives. And so this is not just relevant to elders. This is relevant to our overall lives. We can so easily fall into begrudging spirits because of how hard things are, and we begin to be begrudging not only to our, our wives and our husbands and our children and our jobs. But please let me know, let you know what Peter's defending on here is that you're begrudging to God. Because God's the one who ordered your steps. And so the degree he's telling us to the elders, he's also telling us to the church. Don't become begrudging. Don't allow that spirit to creep into your soul, but be willing. Submit to God's will in your life. Even if it's difficult, do it. To be a pastor is to know that we are called to a duty whether we like it or not. Eagerly and not selfishly, he says. Submit to him eagerly without selfish gain. I just said selfishly, not selfishly. It's easy to fall into a trap as a pastor, and I think this probably fits all of us, whether you're a pastor or not, of dreaming about what you want your church to be, right? And so there's always like this vision of what you want five years. I mean, I get now pastor meetings, and we're like, like this is what I want to see happen five years. And, and there's, there's good times for planning, don't get me wrong, but like they're just so committed to that, they're like, they'll, like, they'll run over everybody just to get to that vision. And when that vision doesn't happen, um, they get down crestfallen and they don't know what to do and they don't know if they're called to ministry because the vision that they had, they felt like God gave them, was not the vision that actually transpired and therefore their whole calling is called into question. Peter's words are not endorsing here though a kind of poverty ethic by the pastor or the elders. You've heard the old statement probably, the old deacon board who prays for their pastor, right? You know what this one is? You guess what it is? Lord, you keep them humble and we'll keep them poor. I, literally, that's like an old statement, and it's like a thing that goes, runs around Baptist churches. That's not, like when you read these passages, this is not to say that the pastor should not have his needs met in his call. In fact, Paul talks about this. But what is in view here is that he flees the heart attitude that the church owes him something. Let me say something to you, church. You don't owe me anything. You don't owe the elders anything. Our job is a, is, a, is a wonderful, beautiful, joyful work, but we don't owe the elders anything. But trust me, pastors will fall into the idea that you owe them something. This and this pastor in Chattanooga, if you read his own words after everything has happened, he talks as if the church owes him something. He talks as if he owns the church. I don't own Thank the Lord for that. 
I don't own the church. Pastor's not dominating, but he must be an example. Again, the idea here is pastors and elders, we're not overlords. It's not my job to overlord your life. It's not my job to fix all of your problems. We are in the trenches with you, but to be domineering means that you just submit to my grand plan at all times. And if you just get on the, get on the right track, man, we could all be just doing wonderful things. Why haven't you gotten on the plan yet? That's what some pastors act like. No, we're not domineering. We are examples. We're in the trenches. Brothers and sisters, I've said it one time, and I've said this to many. I am a member of this church first before I am a pastor in this church. You should treat me like a member. You should treat my wife and my kids as members. We are called to a certain task. I'm called to a certain task, but I'm in the trenches with you, and a pastor should live like that as an example, right? That he's loving and worshiping Jesus as an example. He's loving and, and, and caring for the church as an example. He's loving and caring for his neighbors as an example so that the gospel may be proclaimed. And all of this leads to number four, his reward. Look what it says there. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive an unfading crown of glory. This is the not yet reality of our gospel hope. In spite of the difficult tasks, the lifestyle demands uh, of a pastor or an elder or a church member, the already not yet hope of the gospel keeps real pastors in the game. They understand that this is, a, this is a blip on the radar screen when you think about eternity. This is just a blip on the radar screen. There's something much greater and more beautiful coming. A, a real pastor longs for Jesus' return. They're not afraid to say that. They long for it because they know that the work's hard. And they, are, they just know that when Jesus returns, it's, 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 we're, we're done. We're done. Thank you, Jesus. It's been hard, but we're here. And that's not me or anyone else saying that they don't, we, we, don't, we want to pass our lives away. We're not, we're not being fatalistic in that, okay? But it's just saying, look, man, we're looking towards Jesus' return, and, and I'm going to keep my blinders on for that. I'm going to keep my blinders on for that, and I'm going to keep doing the work. I'm going to keep my head down, and, and there's going to be scrapes and bruises and stumbles and trips from time to time. I can't wait till Jesus comes back. Pastor clings to the hope and joy in his task as a pastor, husband, father, in the present moment, knowing that his work will be rewarded. He will be a partaker, as Peter said earlier, with every Christian and every other pastor who has tread the same road that he has, that I have. Why? And then we will receive an unfading crown of glory. You're probably familiar with the Greek tradition of uh, uh, the Greek athletic contest, right, where the winner would get, the, would get what, like a wreath put around their head? Everyone's seen this, right? Um, and the reef was found, it was a sign of their athletic glory. What you may not know is that they, the reason that they made it greenery is because they know that the glory of that athlete would soon fade. Did you know that? Because there will be someone who's going to beat their record. There's going to be someone who wins younger, faster, stronger next year or five years from now. The greenery represented a temporary glory. And what's really interesting about that is I don't know that the emperors of Rome actually picked up on that. Because they often would wear, in their public presentations of themselves, and when they were public, they would wear green wreaths around their heads when they made public appearances. And um, it wasn't until later medieval times that they, they replaced those wreaths with crowns of gold. And, and why? Well, the reason why is because, at least in some sense, the Greeks recognized that the emperor was temporary, and there would be another emperor at some point. 
But if you go into medieval times, what do kings do? Kings thought that their rule was eternal. They would hand it down to generation to generation to generation to generation. That crown never, ever would fade. Every nation and kingdom that is formed on those grounds thought they had an eternal glory in which did this. And if you even go back to England right now, there is something special about the crown that is very religious in a sense with the Church of England. It was to never fade. See, friends, the crown of glory for the Christian actually will never fade. The other, like, no, very few nations do monarchies today. Y'all know that, right? Because it, kingdoms fall. Kingdoms fade. But you and I will be given a crown of glory as a Christian. And a pastor, according to Peter especially, it doesn't represent an eternal leadership or rule that I have over the church, but this reminds us that our participation in the glory of God is something beautiful and wonderful, and we should look forward to it. It's amazing. That's what we're doing here. That's why we read. That's why we've seen the songs that we do. So at the end, we have to remember that God has given the church, in the midst of their suffering, men who will suffer with them, and we must, and he instructs the younger to be in authority, to submit to them. Now, this is a hard one, right? This is, this is hard for an elder to say to you, submit to the elders, right? But he says here, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now, let me just say this right up front. He's talking younger people here, but younger doesn't mean like age. It means more like maturity. And he's telling those who are not as mature to be submit to or to be subject to the elders under, under which they have their care. The younger here for Peter are those who simply are under the care of the elders, growing faithfully in their faith and in their life in Christ. Youthfulness, as you and I all know, it can cause us to spur authority, right? I mean, if you're raising teenagers, you know that they have all the answers, right? Yep. Mom and dad, we figured that out, right? Sorry, youth, I'm just telling you, you don't have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. Not even close to it. It's just, but, there, but there's a point in our youthfulness that we just think that we have all the answers. And, and, and dare, how dare mom and dad tell me that, 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 uh, that I don't have all the answers? And that's just, I know, I get it. I understand. I was there. I, I've been there. And all Peter's saying here is, don't let your immaturity see the goodness of God and the, and, and the wisdom God has given you with the different structures and spheres of, of life around you and submit and be subject to them, particularly to the elders. Remember in Hebrews 13, 17, it says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. This is God's design. Peter talked about a few weeks ago the spheres of life that you and I live in with the civil government and our, and our vocations and in our family units. We always live in certain levels of authority. And he's now coming back to this now in the church for the elders' authority. And he's saying, listen up. This is a good structure. This is good for you. This is God's good design for you. God gave you parents. He gave you teachers. He gave you masters and managers and pastors and elders. Why? So that you would be cared for, that you would have wisdom, and that you would live a life that is fruitful. Friends, and I'll say this to my young people. Listen up. And even those in elementary school, listen. Pastors are not perfect men. Your parents aren't perfect parents. But they are still God's appointed shepherds over your life. And that's good. That's good. Even with all of their flaws. He says, therefore, clothe yourself in humility. 
clothe yourself in humility. Our growth in the gospel is connected to our growth in humility for one another, recognizing the wisdom of those God has put in our lives. This is what God calls us to. One of the things that I am so grateful for in this particular church is a generational diversity that exists in this church. For such a small church, we have, man, we have people, we, have, we, we are truly womb to tomb in our church. It's wonderful. And it's very, very balanced in our church. Why? Because we need that. One of the things that elders keep praying for is we want men, a little more seasoned men on our elder team. And we hope and pray God will provide that for us in, the, in, the, in, the, in time to come. So let's just conclude and I'll finish up.